despite what your bulletin says, we're actually in the book of 1 Timothy. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. I will be reading from verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 16. Remember, this is the closing of a letter to Timothy, who's pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul has been warning Timothy about all the dangers that the church faces, dangers from false teachers, from all kinds of things, and he says, guard sound doctrine. But he uses emphatic language over and over again. Command this, I charge you to do this. Flee from sin. Embrace your doctrine. In the past few weeks, we've looked at Paul explaining to Timothy that not just the Christian life would be a fight of the faith, but his calling as a minister would be a fight of the faith. The enemies outside of the church, the kings, the princes, and civil magistrates would come against the church. And yet the church should pray for these people. But inside the church, Paul lists false teachers, bad elders or deacons, fault finders, unsubmissive wives, idlers, gossip, slanders, busybodies, conceited people, which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction. All of these things mentioned in the letter for Timothy to deal with. So certainly, Satan seeks to destroy the church and its ministers. And in the midst of all this, Paul tells Timothy, Persevere. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is for all pastors of every age. Indeed, it's for all Christians. So when we go through the sermon, as you hear me basically preaching to myself as a minister, you should take these lessons and apply them to your own lives as well, because they apply to all of us, to every single person who proclaims Jesus Christ. We need to persevere and fight the fight of the faith. So please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. This is the inspired word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers, no flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we approach your word with trepidation, with fear and trembling, and yet with gratitude. You have given us such precious promises, 
such clear instruction. You've not left us alone, but also given us your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know that um, a person who loves the history of Western civilization, and one man stands out as really defending Western civilization more than any other, at least in the past 200 years, and that's Winston Churchill. He almost single-handedly kept Britain from quitting the war, and this is no exaggeration. There were powerful members of the parliament and in the media who just wanted a settled peace with Nazi Germany. What they wanted was, you leave us alone here in our little island. You can keep everything in Europe you've gotten. Just keep it. It's fine. You take what you've got. You just leave us alone. But Churchill would not stand for that. It was wrong. It was morally wrong, and he knew it. And he motivated the people to persevere. He did this in a few ways. By reminding the British people of their heritage, of their strength, and of their resolve throughout history. But most importantly, of the consequences of their failure if they failed to rise to this challenge. And often he did this through speeches. Most of his motivation was through speeches that he made on the radio or to Parliament. Listen to the resolve in the very beginnings of Britain's war as they stood alone for almost a full year against Nazi Germany. He said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. These words make you want to fight something, don't they? They they make you bolstered for whatever the future may hold. And yet these are the words of an unredeemed man who was gifted by God to encourage a people for that particular war. How much more should words such as these build up our resolve? And this is exactly what Paul was trying to do to Timothy. The battle will be difficult. I've given you difficult tasks to accomplish. It's going to be hard. Buck up. Do this thing in the spirit of our Lord. This is the thrust of this closing passage to Pastor Timothy. Pastoral ministry will will be difficult. And much like the Christian life with just maybe a few added attacks, pastors and indeed all Christians should expect all the things that Paul mentioned in this letter. And we see that to the degree that ministers of the gospel are faithful to this call, they should expect quarrels and envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction, all these things that Paul mentioned. They should expect this to swirl around them eventually. 
Now, certainly in our church, we have been blessed. We're a sweet, sweet group. And I've been very blessed because I haven't had to deal with much of that at all. But we can't expect that this will continue forever. Satan will come after Meadow Creek once again, as he has so many times in the past. It's precisely because this would be such a difficult thing that Paul uses such emphatic language to motivate Timothy to do what he was called to do. In short, to remain steadfast in the spiritual fight with the forces of evil that would seek to destroy him and the church and by God's Spirit to never surrender. And remember, all of these moral lessons for Timothy were for the whole church. We know this because the very last verse of this letter says, Grace be with you. And this word you is a plural. It's you guys. It's yuns. It's y'all. Grace be with all of you. This was a, a letter for the church. So the application is for all of us, not just for Timothy, not just for pastors, for everyone. The title is Persevere in the Fight. Timothy needs to minister like Jesus. That's the first point. The second point, he should persevere like Jesus. And the third point is that it's for the glory of Jesus. You, Christian, also should minister like Jesus and persevere like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. And just by way of reminder, the context for all that we're going to talk about today, we've already discussed the context for the past three weeks, which is that Timothy should flee from sin. He should pursue righteousness and godliness and all the fruit of the Spirit. He should fight the good fight of the faith. He should take hold of the eternal life to which he had been called and to which he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He needs to remember his vows, his oath, his confession to this ministry. Remember the confession you made when you took this job, when you were called to be a minister. Remember that you confessed to do this before God. Don't give up. Don't quit. Brother and sister, in your Christian life, in your disciplines of pursuing God through prayer and the Scriptures, don't give up. The first point, though, he should minister like Jesus. Verse 13, we see some very, very strong language from Paul. I charge you, or this is the same as command in the Greek. I charge or command you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus. I charge you, I command you. He's commanding or charging something of great importance. Again, this is the close of the letter. He's saying, all that I've told you, now you must do it, Timothy. He mentions this charge as being given in the presence of God the Father. Don't miss that. Paul is is trying to close this argument, close this letter with a great encouragement to Timothy. And how does he do that? He says, you are serving under the watchful eyes of God the Father. This reminds me of Jesus Christ. Reminds me of a, a military commissioning ceremony where you take an oath of office, you take a vow, you hold up your right hand. 
You promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then after you've taken your vow, you sit down and your commanding officer stands up and he gives you a charge. He tells you this is going to be difficult. Remember your duty. Remember your calling. Tough times are coming. The pomp and circumstance of this ceremony are also added to bolster your resolve not to give up. Because it's not always going to be this pretty. You need to step up and fulfill your commission. It's also like at the end of a wedding, it's more than just taking vows. At the end of the vows, what happens? Then the pastor preaches a sermon. He charges the bride and the groom. This beautiful ceremony, the beautiful bride that you are looking at, in all of her beauty and the white dress, one day you're going to wake up and you're not going to like her too much. And when you look at your husband, this man in the tuxedo and the nice tie with the hair combed, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to see him and he's going to be nasty and he's going to have bad breath and he's going to breathe in your face and things are going to go badly. What do you do? You remember your vows. So the pastor gives a charge to the bride and the groom. This is what Paul's doing. He's saying you need to remember that you've been commissioned by God. Remember your vows And I'm going to give you a charge now in view of God the Father and in view of God the Son. This is how important this message is, Timothy. You're going to have conflicts. If you do what I've told you, certainly correcting false teachers or prideful elders or insubordinate or gossiping women or whatever the thing is that Timothy tries to tackle first, of all that was mentioned in the letter, certainly it's going to produce conflict. It's going to be extremely difficult, Timothy, son, so you need to remember your charge. God the Father is watching over you. And for this reason, Timothy charges or gets charged and commanded to do what he's been told. It's also in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ. This word, gives life to all things, is also uh, maintains life. Elsewhere, Paul has said that in him we live and move and have our being. So in other words, Timothy, in the light of God, who enables your very existence, who gives and sustains your own life and ministry, be faithful. Not only in the sight of God, but in the sight of Jesus Christ. Be faithful. And this isn't the first time that Paul has said such things. Earlier in Timothy, he said in this particular letter, in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and of the elect angels. Again, powering home that this is important and all of heaven is watching. In the book of 2 Timothy, he gives a a charge almost as emphatic in chapter 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So this is apparently one of Paul's favorite methods for inspiring pastors. Remember that you serve God and Jesus Christ In their presence do you minister. In their presence do you serve. 
He also says that Jesus Christ made a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, referring to his death on the cross. He didn't shrink away from his duty. He did what he had promised. So Timothy says, look at Jesus. He made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. He could have gotten out of this. And yet he did not. Pontius Pilate wanted to let him go. He pursued his promise to the very end. Timothy, you be like that. Christian, you be like that. Jesus had promised to his father to be faithful to a covenant. We call this the covenant of redemption between the father and the son. That the father would give his son a people for his own possession. The son would come to the earth. He would suffer at the hands of men, die on a cross, and take them as his own possession after he had redeemed them from sin and death. He did what the first Adam could not do, and that was to be perfectly obedient to God. And then after that obedience, to submit to death, even death on a cross. He was faithful to his confession. This alludes to the covenant of redemption, I think very clearly. And you see these allusions all through the scriptures, especially in the book of John and in the Gospels. I'm just going to go through a couple to show you what that faithfulness was alluding to. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 49, this is when Jesus had been born and was a young boy and his parents were returning to uh, Nazareth from Jerusalem and they couldn't find their son. Their son was nowhere among the wedding party and they finally found him in the temple. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? See, he had a calling from his father. He had a mission given him by his father. He must be there. Even at a young age, he knew this. It's more explicit in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We see a mission given to the Son by the Father. This mission that he was faithful to. John five thirty six, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. When did the Father give the Son these people? It was before the foundation of the earth. And the son came and fulfilled his mission. Timothy, you do that. Christian, fulfill your mission. John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The son also received a charge, a command from his father. And finally, John chapter 17 The Father speaking, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished... Sorry, this is the Son speaking. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have also kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And besides these passages throughout the scripture, we see that Jesus is often referred to someone who is chosen, who is appointed, who is ordained, much in the same way that Timothy and every minister of the gospel since was also appointed or ordained. But Jesus was the greater mediator, of course, the only mediator and redeemer of his people. And there was an arrangement between the Father and the Son to save a people for himself. Amen. Else we would not be saved. Jesus was faithful to his charge. He made the good confession before Pilate. He did not shrink away. Timothy should do the same. And he should look to Jesus for inspiration. Indeed, all pastors, indeed, all Christians should look to Jesus who is faithful to his calling. When you feel discouraged, when you feel attacked, when you feel like you're being slandered or gossiped about, or you feel tempted to offense, look to Jesus. Look at how he responded under similar situations. Jesus embraced it all for the glory of his Father, and so should we. So this is very emphatic language Paul's using in the sight of God, in the sight of the Son. So what is Paul charging Timothy to do? Verse 14, the second point, he's charging him to persevere like Jesus did. To keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach. The commandment is the Word of God, the entire letter that Paul has written especially regarding the maintenance of gospel truth. This is the theme of 1 Timothy. Hold fast to the gospel. Do not let go of sound doctrine. Let it, let it so permeate your life that everyone sees your progress. But specifically, he's going to have to discipline false teachers and prideful people, and it's going to be difficult, so you must keep the commandment unstained. You must persevere through this difficult trial. Looking back at all of 1 Timothy from chapter 1 to chapter 6, there's so many instances of Paul telling Timothy to do something difficult. Chapter 1, verse 3, command certain people not to teach different doctrines. Chapter 1, verse 18, this I charge, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, that you might wage a good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. Chapter 3, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Chapter 4, verse 13, 15, and 16. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Chapter 5, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. I charge you to keep the rules, these rules without prejudicing or partiality. Keep yourself pure. Chapter 6, verse 2, teach and urge these things. Verse 11, you, O man of God, flee these things. Fight the good fight. So this is a letter of charges and commands of, of don't give ups. 
This is the means by which Timothy has to be strong and courageous, reliance and focus on Jesus. Positively, we see that he must pursue godliness. He must remember the oaths he's taken, the vows before many witnesses, before God the Father and the Son and the elect angels. Negatively, he must keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, and this will mean church discipline, and he must engage the threats to the unity and peace of the church in a spirit of love. But addressing those people nonetheless, the weight upon Timothy is heavy. And for every minister of the gospel who understands his call, it's just as heavy and just as difficult. If you remember in Ezekiel chapter 3, a very precious passage of the word of God, he's, Ezekiel's given uh, a scroll and God tells him to eat the scroll. You remember it's sweet. He says it tasted like honey. This is because when a minister is preaching the gospel, ministering the gospel to others, it's sweet. It's sweet as honey. But in John, or sorry, in Revelation 10, John describes the same scroll as being bitter to his stomach. Dr. Godfrey says that this alludes to the rejection of the word of God by people in the church, as well as the rejection and despising of the minister. And yet even this is a blessing. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that doesn't just apply to ministers. It applies to each one of you. You're never alone. And when you feel persecuted, praise God, Jesus said. Because this shows that you are a true follower, a slave of Jesus. If they hated the master, he said they will also hate his slaves. And Jesus is talking about those attacking in the covenant community. So Paul was telling Timothy, this would be a fight for the faith. You're going to be rejected, reviled, and persecuted on the account of Jesus. But remember he who called you and remember your vows. And press on. It is with a heavy heart that I studied and wrote this particular sermon this week because a good friend of mine, who was a gospel minister for many, many years, recently stopped. And we've all known good men who just were worn out or burned out or beat down by all the pressures and just stopped. We've all known people that have done this. And I think myself walking into ministry three years ago or committing to ministry five years ago, I thought I would look at people who did that and just think to myself, okay, what is wrong with you? How hard could it possibly be? This is a wake-up call for me and I think everyone who knew this man. He wasn't, your, he wasn't a weakling. He wasn't some kind of limp-wristed kind of beta male this was a strong man, a morally strong, capable, godly, well-equipped man, solid family, genuine love for Jesus and his flock. But through years of quarrels and envy and dissension and strife and backstabbing and all kinds of friction caused by the most prominent and prideful people in the church, 
He grew weary to the point of despair. It took his toll on him, on his whole family, and eventually, very recently, he just left the ministry. And this is a man who was at the top of his field as a professor, as a pastor. Despite all his accomplishments, he was very humble, Christ-like, full of love and joy and peace. And God had used him for a great expansion of the gospel in this world in a very difficult place. And now it seems when I talk to him like he was just grieving, weeping, like Jeremiah the weeping prophet, having been betrayed and undermined and gossiped and slandered and backstabbed and not just him, his whole family. And he had continued to serve for many years in this situation, even pursuing those who hated him most. And yet at the end of it, he just had to stop. He was exhausted. His family was miserable. He was trying to be faithful, but he had to stop. The strong, godly, stable man threw in the towel. And it was a warning to me. I just thought, oh my goodness. If it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. No wonder John Calvin wrote of verses 8-14 through 14 of this text. How many things does Satan constantly present to our eyes? which but for this would a thousand times draw us aside of the right course. I say nothing about fires and swords and banishments and all the furious attacks of enemies. I say nothing about slanders and other vexations. How many things are within that are far worse? Ambitious men openly attack us. Impudent men provoke us. Hypocrites murmur at us. They who are wise in the flesh secretly bite us. We are harassed by various methods in every direction. In short, it is a great miracle that any man perseveres steadfastly in an office so difficult and so dangerous. The only remedy for all these difficulties, and you all know the remedy, is to cast our eyes toward the appearing of Christ and to keep them fixed on it continually. As I mentioned before, I'm not saying this because I feel like I am being persecuted in some way. But this is where the text has led. And it probably will come someday for all of us. But I would humbly ask for your prayers as your pastor. I know that there is a target on my back and so be it. This is the calling I've received. But more than that, this is also requiring of you a diligent maintenance of peace. Let there be no grumbling or gossip or offense about the elders. Come to them and talk to them. And always be aware that Satan could use your little grumbling and your your little murmuring to destroy a church. And it starts small. So in light of the great struggle that Timothy's about to face, he's facing much more than that. And in the fury of the enemy who would seek to devour the church and devour Timothy himself, Paul charges and commands him. It's like the speech before the battle. If you've seen the old movie Patton, He gives his whole division a speech before the battle. And they go out motivated by that speech. This is what Paul is doing. He's saying, persevere like Jesus. Don't shrink away. It's going to be hard. But God has lifted you up and you can do it in the power of the Spirit. Don't fear men. Fear God alone. How long? Verse 14 tells him how long. Until Christ returns. 
This isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. And it's even longer than a marathon. You keep going until Christ returns. He will come back, but you need to keep going until that time. This is the only way to keep a gospel focus in the midst of the onslaught of the seed of the serpent, which will come after all of us. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So number one, minister like Christ. Number two, persevere like Christ. But remember, the most important thing, I think, is it's all for the glory of Jesus. All the work that we do is for God's glory alone. Verse 15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This doxology is in all of Paul's letters almost. Whenever he talks about serving Jesus, he cannot help but praise Him. God is the blessed and only sovereign. Blessed. This means happy or enlarged or fortunate. Jerry alluded to this in his elders' prayer that God is the only person who in Himself is completely blessed, content. All other blessings we enjoy flow from God. But God in Himself is truly the only blessed one. Perfectly content in Himself. In the triune God. He's also the only sovereign. This is helpful always to remember, isn't it? Especially today, when you see tyrants and terrorists around the world stomping on the rights of citizens, earthly rulers and despots, trampling on people for their own power, their own wealth, restricting freedom and liberty, violating human rights, confiscating property. All of these things have always happened. There's nothing new under the sun. Even now we see the government being used to persecute political enemies. These things have always been so. There's nothing new. The wickedness today, though, seems very prevalent. And we see it. And it causes us concern. But Christians are confident. We don't worry about tomorrow. No matter how badly we are governed, God is the only sovereign. So we are governed well by God. The root of this word sovereign is dunamis. It means power. That's why it's often translated potentate, a word that we don't hear often today. But it just means the only powerful one, the powerful ruler. This is our God. All of these earthly rulers, God established them. We don't fear them at all. They're clay in his hands. They're like water running through his fingers. He directs them however he will. Isaiah 40 tells us that they're like grasshoppers before him. Nothing to be afraid of. God is the only sovereign. He rules over all things. Timothy, your God has all power. Don't be afraid of anything. For this reason, he's called the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. There's no higher authority. The most powerful man in the world, there's someone in authority over him. That's our king. None will ever challenge his will, and all things work out exactly as our sovereign king and Lord has planned. Pastor Timothy, don't fear man. You'll be worthless in your call. Christian, don't fear man. You will be worthless in your call. Fear God alone. But for Timothy, in the midst of the battle for the church of Ephesus, despite the trials and persecutions, he certainly would face... He needed to remember that God was actively running his universe. He didn't wind up the clock and walk away. He's actively running his universe. All things hold together by the word of his power. 
God was sovereign. And he is immortal. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see our God. Such is his holiness. We also are immortal in a sense that we've been created and we're going to live forever in heaven or hell. God's immortal in the sense that he has no end or beginning. Truly immortal. Nobody can stand before him. Timothy, this is your God and he's for you. Don't give up. And whenever somebody catches a glimpse of God's presence, the glory cloud in the Bible, the fire in the bush, the lightning on the mountain, or a vision like Isaiah had, they all do the same thing. They fall to the ground in worship. They see that they are unclean before a holy God. And every minister, every elder who serves the people of God knows the same thing, one clean before God. And yet God uses broken vessels and crooked sticks to strike blows for his people. So remember, we have an almighty, eternal, and most holy God on our side. We do all things for his glory. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. So we minister like Christ, we persevere like Christ, and it's all for the glory of Christ. And conclude with this last concluding statement, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's like I never, I never like that phrase when someone's sharing the gospel and they say something like, you need to make Jesus your Lord. I don't like the wording. I mean, it's true, but Christ is Lord. He is. You recognize him as Lord or you rebel against him as Lord, but he is Lord. He gets all honor and all dominion is his forever and ever. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Timothy, all your suffering. Christian, all the suffering, all the heartaches and trials and tribulations that you face, like Timothy's, are lovingly bounded by your sovereign God. The road of faith is a fight. The enemy is devious and persistent. Jesus said your own friends will betray you. Your own family will attack you. But don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Fix your eyes on Christ. Look to your Lord. Anticipate His coming. And after doing so, we can say, we shall fight the fight of faith with growing confidence, whatever the cost may be. We shall by the Spirit of God never, ever surrender. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are our God. You are the only sovereign the only wise, the potentate, the one with all power and all dominion. We thank you that all things work together according to your purpose. And we thank you that for ministers of the gospel or for Christians in their daily lives, you are with us. We don't need to be afraid. We need to hold tightly to Jesus Christ, to focus on Jesus Christ, to persevere like Christ, and do all things for the glory of Christ. Help us, Lord. Remind us, encourage our hearts, strengthen our hands, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.